This morning, we're going to get into part three of our series on Revelation. But before we do, let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for the opportunity we have this morning to share your word. Lord, I pray that as we go into the churches of Revelation, as we go into the seven churches and what the, who they are and, and what they've been going through and what they did go through, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us clearly in our hearts and minds. Lord, I thank you for allowing me the privilege of ministering your word this morning. Lord, I pray that our focus would be on you. I pray that our focus would be on what the Holy Spirit is speaking to us. That it wouldn't just be a Sunday service and we'd take it, leave, go home, have lunch, and forget about it. But Lord, it would stick with us. Lord, we thank you and praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I do want to remind you, uh, tomorrow, uh, tomorrow is when Tina is going to be having her surgery. And so um, if you would please be in, be in prayer for her, for Tim, and for the family uh, tomorrow morning uh, or throughout the day, I'm sure it would be greatly appreciated. Last week, we finished chapter one, and we got a glimpse of the next couple chapters. So if you weren't here, if you want to watch it online, you can. But we finished chapter one of Revelation, and we see that in chapter two, we read about John the Revelator is being given a picture of seven lampstands. You remember the picture that I showed you last week with uh, the, the man with white hair? It's Jesus with white hair and, and a beard, and he's has a gold sash and around the seven lampstands, right? And so we know that the seven lampstands represent seven churches. Now, again, this comes into the imagery of Revelation. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. We see Jesus standing in the middle of them, and he has a message for them. And as we see what Jesus is speaking to these churches, I want us to be mindful of our own hearts and our own minds. You see, it's easy to read the words written to other Christians and tend to think of other Christians, right? Do you ever hear something and you go, oh, I know who that's about. Oh, I, you hear something in the Bible, you go, man, I know exactly who that is, right? When sometimes it's just God wants us, God is speaking to us. God is speaking to our mind, to our heart, right? It's easy to think of other Christians or other churches when in reality, we need to turn the magnifying glass towards ourselves, right? How many know what I'm talking about? We need to turn it towards ourselves sometimes. So I will give you fair warning that while there are some great aspects to these believers, there are also incredible shortfalls. There, in some cases, is outright sin. As we go into the seven churches, you'll see that this is Jesus bringing them both exhortation or encouragement as well as correction. Say correction. We don't like to hear that word too much. In the modern church, it seems we only want encouragement. Just encourage me, Pastor David. Just, just encourage me. Just let it be all about sunshine and puppy dog tails. Right? Just encourage me. But we only want exhortation. But how many know that sometimes in our life we need correction? Right? How many, how many used to be a, a child? How many used to be a kid? Uh, yes. Uh, some of the children here are still children, right? And they need correction. They need parenting. Right, Will? 
need parenting because here's the thing. Here's what happens. As a kid, we just do whatever we want. How many know that as a kid, you do stuff, you did stuff as a kid that you would never do as an adult? Anybody know what I'm talking about? We used to have a hill uh, in our neighborhood. Who is that? Is it a child? That's all right, Oliver. Oliver, this is exactly what I'm talking about. No, it's okay. Oh, it's Anna. This is exactly what I'm talking about. No, we would do things as children that we would never do as adults. So in our neighborhood, we had this hill. And we have this hill, and we're going down this hill. And we would go as fast as we could. And the hill ended with a creek. All right? So sometimes the creek was frozen, Mike, and sometimes it wasn't quite as frozen. And so we would get going as, as, as fast as we could. And if we went to the creek, sometimes you got real wet and sometimes you didn't. Now, as an adult, would I still do that? Absolutely, I would. Because it was fun, right? But there's other things that as kids, you just don't do anymore. You don't do those things because you're an adult, right? And so we don't want to do the things that we would do as children because we were given correction. We were given guidance. We were given wisdom. So uh, if you're a parent here, I'm sure at some point you've talked to your child and your child has done something or gone along with friends and doing something, and you've uttered these words. Well, if all your friends jumped off a bridge, would you? Carol, did you ever say that to your boys? I'm sure you did, right? Because why? Because correction is necessary. That is loving guidance, right? Not, not overcorrection, not abuse, but correction is loving guidance. That's what we do as parents. It doesn't feel good. Listen, it's not an easy process. It's not an easy process. It doesn't feel good. It's not a comfortable aspect of life. But how many know it is necessary? We have far too many people who are just, who are just, just make everything better. I, 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 I've told you about this before. Oh, my goodness. I'm going to get fired up. You, you ready for me to get fired up? I ran into a parent that got mad when their child was told no. Don't, don't, tell, don't, don't tell them no. We want to we make sure it's positive. Come on. We want to make sure that they're just encouraged in everything they do. And so now we have a generation that's confused about a lot of different things. Right? Because they're never told no. They're never given guidance or correction or wisdom. How many know that a loving parent doesn't just encourage, they also correct? A loving parent doesn't just encourage, they also have to correct. My kids, I'm going to brag on my kids. Is that okay? Uh, you guys know my kids. Eli, stand up. This is the first time I've had you stand up for, for an analogy. How you doing? Jocelyn is back there with her friends. She didn't want to be up here for this. I love my kids. I, I'm gonna, I can brag on my kids for a little bit. My kids, for the most part, are very good kids. I mean, they don't cause a lot of trouble, and they don't get in, you know, too much trouble. For the most part, they do what they're told, for the most part. And listen, when they need it, my wife and I, usually my wife, has to bring correction. Now, there's times where she's asked me to bring correction. 
And it sometimes goes well, and sometimes it's hard to not laugh when you know what they've done is funny, but also they need correcting. So uh, there was, I remember there was a time, this is young, as a young parent, that somebody who's sitting in the back needed correction. And uh, so it was going to be just a, a, little, a, little, a little spank. And so I remember going, I don't want to, this, I don't want to do this. It was something over, I don't remember what it was about, but Jackie was like, I'm, I'm not, she was, she said, she said, you need to go and, and give her a spanking. And I said, okay. And so I said, Jocelyn, go in there. And, and I had a, I had a big belt with a buckle on it. I'm just kidding. I didn't have, I don't think I had a belt with a buckle on it, but I just said, okay, listen, I'm going to do this. And you just say, ow. And so, because this is the thing, because I, because I thought, well, is this really something that needs correction? I don't know. So I said to her, it's kind of, it's, it's hard for her to look like she's been corrected when she's laughing. Right? So, so I, I went like this, I go, uh, and she goes, ow. And I did it again, and, uh, and ow. And she came out of the bedroom, and Jackie looked at me like, you didn't do a thing. I'm like, yeah, but she knows what she did was wrong. It's okay, right? Listen, there's times where we have to bring correction, right? Come on. There's times where God has to bring you correction, there's times where God has to bring us correction, right? We do this because we see, listen, as parents, we see if they continue to do the wrong thing, they're going to end up in the wrong way, right? If they continue to do the wrong thing, they're going to end up in the wrong way. It's going to lead to a terrible end. And so we love them enough to steer them away and guide them away from that which will destroy them, right? That's what a loving parent does. That's what God gives us and does for us. So take heart this morning in knowing that the Lord loves you enough and loves me enough to bring us correction. And so when we look at these churches, we see that Jesus is directing John to write letters to the churches or to the church leaders. And he uses specific language. He says, write to the angel of these churches, and we begin with the church that is found in the city called Ephesus. Go to the next slide. It says this in Revelation 2, verse 1 through 3. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write these words, the word of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. This was the picture we saw last week, right? I know your works, I know your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. That's a good testimony, isn't it? I mean, you think about the church, and I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. You can't bear those who do evil. You've, you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. You're enduring patiently. You're bearing up for my name's sake. You have not grown weary. That is an awesome testimony these believers have. 
Hardworking and patient, Susie. Right? Good stuff. Things seem to be going well for them. How many know when seems things seem to be going well, it only seems that way? Right? Because sometimes behind the scenes, there's other stuff going on. So behind the scenes, there's an issue that the Lord sees. And because the Lord sees it, he addresses it in love. He says this in verse 4. But I have this against you. To the church in Ephesus, I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Talk about something that cuts to the heart, right? Jesus just speaks very directly. He, he gives him first a lot of compliments. He says, man, this is, this is what you've done right. Look at this church. This church, this is, this is a testimony. This is what you've done right. But you have abandoned your first love. You have abandoned your first love. It's interesting because some, some of you will remember. How many remember when you first came to Christ? Anybody? How many remember, I mean, who you were before the Lord? And then you came to Christ. And when you came to Christ at first, now, some people were raised in the church. I was raised in the church. I remember saying a prayer with my dad when I was six years old. I remember going to, going to children's church. I remember I was raised in the church. I also remember that I didn't exactly have a real clear, defined relationship with God until I was in my teens, until I really started to take it seriously. For many, many years, I grew up in the church. I was, I was a Christian. I was Pentecostal I was, because my parents were, because that's where I went to church. But then in my teenage years, I started to have real relationship with God. How many remember, remember when you first became a Christian and the, the fire, the excitement? I, I can't wait to share what the Lord has done for me. I can't wait to understand his word and what it means for my life. I can't wait to understand what God is speaking to, to, me, as a, to me as a person and to the church as a whole. So we get excited about our faith. We, we constantly devour his word and we're hungry for his presence, right? Because that's what believers do. That's who we are. We're hungry for his word. If not, we should be, right? If we're not hungry for his presence, we should be. We don't just come into a building with four walls and sit down and put on a smile and listen to music and hear a message and, and go home and just sit down and do nothing, right? That's not, I mean, I hope we don't do that, right? We don't just, we don't just go to our, our classrooms and, and avoid any talk of Jesus. And we don't, we don't just, I mean, right? I hope that's not what we do. Church, you are doing so many good things. But you're doing them out of religious obligation rather than passionate relationship. And that's what Jesus is speaking to the church in Ephesus. 
You are doing so many good things. You got programs. You're helping people. You're doing what you got to do, but you're doing them out of religious obligation rather than passionate relationship. I'm telling you, when we're doing stuff out of personal obligation rather than relationship, it will drive us towards death. It will drive us towards death. Remember from where you have fallen and then repent. Say repent. Do me, do me a favor. Say it louder. Repent. Thank you, Mike. One more time. Say repent. We don't like to hear this word. We don't like to hear the word repent, do we, Tim? We don't. Why? Because it drums up images of crazy people on street corners with large poster boards filled with angry representations of fire and destruction, right? So they're on the street corner and repent for the time is near. How many know what I'm talking about? You ever see those signs? See those people? Gary, we talked about that a few weeks ago, right? Repent. That's right, Matt. Repent, for the time is near. Listen, this is a word, repent, has been associated with negativity. Negativity. One pastor wrote this. Throughout the centuries, some denominations or movements in the body of Christ have constructed, listen, elaborate rules and rituals of repentance. Beads, candlelighting, confessional booths, self-denial through extreme fasting, physical punishment are but a few examples of the sincere but misguided belief. The result for many adherents has been a legacy of shame and humiliation. While the burden has become crippling, many have fallen away from the faith. And this is why shame does not produce liberty and life no matter how well intended the rituals. Shame does not produce liberty in life. And, and I, you know, how many have met Christians before where they think about, you know, their past and maybe what they've done or what they're doing, and they go, well, you know, it's just, it's all under the blood, brother. It's all under the blood. So they can do whatever they want. They can live however they want. They can watch whatever they want, they can drink whatever they want, they can do whatever they want, and then it just, well, you know, it's all under the blood. Right? And that's what is said. It's all under the blood. And I want to say this, this position, according to a pastor, diminishes the joy of experiencing the fullness and the depth of the Holy Spirit's ongoing work of what's called sanctification. How many know we need to be sanctified? Come on, now you're getting quiet. Now you're getting quiet because you know that, yeah, there's times where in my life I need correction. I need to be sanctified. Sanctification produces a vital lifeline to God. When we ignore the aspects of sanctification in our life, it compromises our relationship to God. It compromises our relationship to God. One pastor said it leads to atrophy in the human soul. 
and accusations of being part of what we call the frozen chosen. You ever hear that phrase? It's part of the frozen chosen. Frozen in spiritual arrogance or crippled by shame. It's no wonder people cringe when they hear the dreaded word, repent. Repent. I like what one pastor said about this. What is repentance? This is not a command to feel sorry or really to feel anything. This is not a command to feel sorry or really to feel anything. It means to change your direction, to go in a different way. It is an urgent appeal for instant change of attitude and conduct before it is too late. We can come up and cry big crocodile tears about how sorry we are for the things that we've done, right? But until we change, there's no repentance. Until we change, there's no repentance. I once heard an analogy of a young man who was uh, with his girlfriend in a front seat of a car. They were parked, if you know what I mean. And he was praying. He was a young Christian man, and he was praying, Oh, Lord, please don't lead me into temptation. Praying, Oh, God, please help me. Just as they were going into the back seat. Lord, please help me avoid temptation. No, no, no. Repentance is not being sorry for it. Repentance is turning away from it. Oh, Lord, I'm so sorry I got caught. Lord, I know I did wrong. Lord, forgive me. Oh, cry, cry, tears, tears. And then we go back to the same old thing, that same old vomit, that same old sin. That's not repentance. Repentance is not a feeling. It is an action. It is turning away and going in a new direction. That's the appeal. That's, the, that's what Jesus is speaking to the church in Ephesus. He isn't calling for a time of weeping and sackcloth and ashes and self-flagellation. He isn't calling for any of those things. He's simply calling them to come back to their first love because they are lost. Jesus ends this letter, and I like this. He first encourages them, then he gives them correction, and then he encourages, encourages them a little bit more. Go to the next slide. It says this. Yet this you have. I like that. He says, this you have. This is good. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, uh, that word conquers is more aptly said, to the one who overcomes. To the one who conquers or the one who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Jesus starts with encouragement. He ends with encouragement, but he doesn't leave out correction. And again, he shows us an example of his love. Because that's what love does. Love encourages and also corrects. It's interesting because the wording here says you hate the work 
or the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So God, even in the richness of his love, hates something. Even in the richness of his love, what does he hate? He hates sin. We are called to love what God loves and hate what God hates. Amen? He says to the church in Ephesus, listen, you got some things to work on. Come back to your first love. Get that passion. Get that fire. Get that zeal back. But there are some things that are good. You hate what I hate. The Nicolaitans. The church in Ephesus hated the Nicolaitans, and here's why. You have to remember, the church in Ephesus was a church that was very, very clear on the pureness of the doctrine. They are all about the purity of the doctrine. And from what's known about the Nicolaitans, they were filled with false doctrine. What's clear is this. According to a few historians, these were followers of a man named Nicholas. And what they did was they would lead lives of unrestrained indulgence. Unrestrained indulgence, just whatever we wanted to do, including sexual immorality, including they had this anything-goes mentality in regards to spiritual consequences. They would have no problem committing adultery and being a part of the festivities of orgies of the culture. Jesus tells the church in Ephesus that they are absolutely right in many things, including this hatred of sin, but they need to come back to their first love. How many know the Lord wants us to be have that fire. He wants us to have that zeal. He wants us to have that passion that we remember as part of our first love. How important for us is it not to lose that intensity in our life? Some may say, but Pastor David, what was written? That was written to the church for then. That was written, I mean, that was written to the early church. That was pretty ancient stuff. It was written to them. It wasn't written to us. And to that, I would say this. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 says this. All Scripture, say all Scripture. All Scripture is God-breathed. It is useful for instruction, for conviction, for correction. Say correction. And for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, fully equipped for every good work. All Scripture is God-breathed. As we go through these churches in Revelation, of course, these are things that happened back in the very early church, but things that apply to us now. As we go, uh, be asking God, Lord, expose and change that which is wrong with our hearts so that we may serve you in righteousness, because that's what we're called to do, amen? We're called to serve him in righteousness. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying. You'll find this phrase to be a constant in all seven letters to the church. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying. All seven letters will have that constant. The church in Ephesus could be described as a backslidden church. But in case you're curious, I'm just going to want to let you know, in case you're curious, there is evidence from history that the church in Ephesus received the letter 
and then return to their first love. Isn't that cool? They received this letter from the Apostle John, and they returned to their first love. It's what God has called us to do. Amen? Amen. We're going to move on to the second church. We're going to cover two churches this morning. And the next church that is written about is found in the city called Smyrna. Now, Smyrna is a very short letter. This is the extent of the letter. This is all it is. Very short letter. It's written to a church that is in desperate need of encouragement. Listen, they are a city. Smyrna is a city that is based inside of a rich, 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 beautiful, beautiful. They are a church in a beautiful city. So I like what David Guzik says. He says this. This was a large, beautiful, and proud city. Uh, Think about a large, beautiful, proud city. Name a a city that that would describe. Anybody have any suggestions? What? Rome. A beautiful, large, amazing city. Anybody else? Venice? Okay, let's let's think about uh, in the United States. Anything in the United States? Who said New York? New York, what? San Francisco, a beautiful city, right? Anybody else? What? Used to be San Francisco? (laughs) That's all right. Anybody? I've been to a few. I love Seattle. I love the beauty of Seattle. When I think about a city that is astoundingly beautiful, I think about Seattle. It was astoundingly beautiful. The mountains and the trees, everything about it was just amazing. Smyrna was that type of city. Smyrna was like a Rome, like a Venice, like a San Francisco, like a Seattle. It claimed to be what was called the glory of Asia. It was a city that was ruled by idolatry and in the worship of its rulers. In fact, it became a yearly requirement, listen to this, for its citizens to burn incense to and worship Caesar as Lord. Here's what they would do. They would take a pinch of incense. They would take it and burn it and say Caesar is Lord, and in doing so, they would be given a certificate that meant they fulfilled their religious duties for the year. Just a pinch of incense just a short ceremony where you say Caesar is Lord, you burn it, that's it. You get your certificate, and then you can live however you want. All the Christian had to do was burn that pinch of incense. I like what this commentary says. All they had to do was burn it, receive their certificate, go away and worship as they pleased. But that is precisely what the Christians would not do. That is precisely what they would not do. They would give no man the name of Lord. That name they would keep for Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. Amen? They would not even formally conform. When Jesus addresses this church in Revelation, there is no condemnation. There is no repentance called for. There's simply encouragement because they are a persecuted church. Verse 8 says, And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. How many know that is Jesus Christ? Verse 9, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. 
and the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Listen to this carefully. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. He doesn't say you're going to avoid the suffering. He doesn't say you're just going to narrowly escape it. He says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Say tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Somebody say amen. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, the one who overcomes, will not be hurt by the second death. In the middle of the city of wealth, this church, I mean, this in the middle of this beautiful, amazing, wealthy, rich city, this church is in poverty. This church is in poverty. And history shows us that it's because of economic persecution. The rulers robbed and persecuted them financially for their allegiance to Christ. They robbed them. They persecuted them because of Jesus. Jesus says, I know your poverty, but in reality, you are rich. Now, I've known what it's like to be poor. I don't know what if I've known what it's like to be rich, except if I compare it to the entire world. But I've known what it's like to be poor, and I've known what it's like to be middle, right? Uh, middle is better than poor. Just be honest. Rich is better than poor. Rich is better than poverty, right? I mean, that's right. That's what we. That's that's the mindset. Here, Jesus says. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. Why would Jesus say this? Why would Jesus say that they are rich? Because our wealth is not tied up in 401ks and the stock market. Are you hearing me this morning? Our wealth is not tied up in how big of a house we have or how much land we have. Our wealth is not tied up in how many cows we have or how much corn we have. Our wealth is determined by the condition of our soul and our placement in eternity. Matthew 6, 19-21 says this, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The church in Smyrna is facing tremendous persecution. And listen, it was leading towards death. It was leading towards death. But Jesus encourages them, stand fear or stand strong, stand firm. Do not fear. Yes, you will suffer. Clearly, you are going to suffer, but your reward will be great. The devil may throw you into prison. There's interesting, uh, go next, go to the uh, back one slide, Mike. It's interesting because the language here, 
says, uh, Behold, the devil is about to throw you into some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Uh, there's actually a debate among theologians about what that 10 days actually is. You say, Pastor David, why does that matter? Because they actually think it was 10 years. I mean, I can put up with some stuff for 10 days. I've been to church camp for 10 days, all right? I know what it's like to put up with some stuff for 10 days. I can do 10 days, but can you do 10 years? Think about the tribulation that they're going to experience. And he says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Some see it as a common Greek phrase that just means this undetermined amount of time. It was a common Greek phrase, just 10 days you'll have tribulation. Boy, that means forever, until you die. We don't know. Regardless of how long the persecution is, it's clear there's going to be some suffering, right? Far too often in modern Christianity, and specifically within the Pentecostal church, our faith has been painted as one that should be free from hardships, it should be free from poverty, it should be free from suffering. But that is simply not the case, and it has no biblical standing. That is not the case. It has no biblical standing. The health and wealth crowd, and I get the prosperity gospel, I understand it. But that is not true to Scripture. This incredibly faithful New Testament church who loves the Lord, who's doing everything right, there's no condemnation, and yet the Lord says, you are about to suffer. And you're going to suffer unto death. That doesn't jive with health and wealth. That doesn't, that doesn't jive with prosperity. What that jives with is we are, going, we are called to suffer sometimes along with Christ. This incredibly faithful church, Jesus tells them, you are going to go through tribulations, but listen. This world is not your home, right? You're just passing through. It's just a vapor. It's here and it's gone. In the light of eternity, any suffering we have here on earth is nothing. In the light of eternity, no matter how much you may suffer for however long you're living, you may live 70 years and suffer every part of that 70 years. And in the light of eternity, it's just a pinch of pain compared to the glory of God. That's what this church is facing. That what, that's what this church is suffering. I want to show you a video. The video is about a man named Polycarp. This church, specifically, he is a leader of. He is the bishop of the church in Smyrna. He is a disciple of the Apostle John. He is one degree removed from Jesus. Polycarp, as you will see, will be martyred for his faith. There is persecution that is going to happen. Let's see it together. As the Roman Empire flourished here in Smyrna, it became a pretty rough place for Jews and Christians. Both Jews and Christians were monotheistic faiths, and the Romans instituted emperor worship. 
and anybody caught not bowing a knee to uh, an image or an idol of the Caesar was subject to pretty harsh treatment, even death. In fact, in 156 AD, one of Christianity's most famous early church fathers, Polycarp, was burned at the stake and martyred right here in Smyrna. Polycarp was a man born in 70 AD who came to believe in Christ at an early age. He had the opportunity later to study directly under the Apostle John and others who had had direct association with Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry. Pretty cool that he was only one degree separated from Jesus himself. Polycarp was eventually appointed by John as the bishop of the church in Smyrna, where he faithfully ministered for many years. It was under the rule of Roman Emperor Marcus Aurelius that the persecution of Christians became more intense. In the year 156 AD, Polycarp was arrested by Roman soldiers and was taken before the local proconsul here in Smyrna and urged to utter the phrase, Caesar is Lord, and offer a small pinch of incense to the statue of the emperor. It was a simple formality that would have spared Polycarp from torture and death. His refusal to do so infuriated the bloodthirsty mob. Then, according to a Smyrnian letter recording the event, as Polycarp was being dragged to his place of execution, a voice was heard from heaven by all the believers that were present. The voice said this, Be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. Then, standing in the arena, Polycarp was urged one last time to renounce Christ. His response, well attested in historical accounts, was this, Eighty-six years I have served and he never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved Polycarp was soon led to the stake to be burned alive. Claiming that God would give him the strength to remain on the stake without moving, he asked to be tied instead of nailed to the stake. Then, after Polycarp uttered his last prayer, the fire was lit. To the astonishment of the crowd, the flames merely swirled around him as if a wall of wind was protecting him, and his body was unscathed. The executioner was then ordered to plunge a sword through the flames into Polycarp. After doing so, as the letter reports, Polycarp's blood gushed forth and extinguished the fire. One of early Christianity's most important church fathers was dead. His life and death was a living testimony of faith that would endure for 2,000 years. But the death of Polycarp backfired, for his conviction and witness went on to inspire and embolden thousands of saints after him. He is a tangible illustration of the fact that during the times of the greatest persecution, the Christian church grows the most. During times of the greatest persecution, when the church grows the most. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, or the one who overcomes, will not be hurt by the second death. It's said that there have been more Christian martyrs in the 20th century than in all other centuries combined. Being killed for Christ is not an ancient issue. 
It's a modern issue. Will you stand with me this morning? Being martyred for our faith is not an ancient issue. It is a modern issue. We can only wonder what the 21st century will require of believers. We can only wonder what the 21st century is going to require of those who call themselves Christians. What will your faith require? On Wednesday nights, we've been doing the series called Not a Fan. Uh, for those of you who have been here, you know that it's a series that shows the difference between being a fan of Jesus and being a follower of Jesus. There's fans. They know facts. They know figures. And then there's followers. This week, uh, we're going to finish up with the last two episodes. I told you that already. And if you haven't been there, I want to encourage you to be there if at all possible. It's really easy to get caught up if you missed it. And honestly, I believe that you'll be blessed by it. Not a fan. Wednesday at 6.30. I encourage you to be there. This morning before we leave, um, listen, this, that we're gonna get, this is only two of the seven churches we're going to get into all of the churches moving forward. But again, this is not... This is, this is a message that uh, throughout the entire seven churches, they can get a little tough. Some of the things might apply to us. Some things don't apply to us. But we want to make sure that we're not just putting it off on other churches or other Christians, that we're letting the Holy Spirit take the magnifying glass to our soul and saying, Lord, are there things I need to work on? Lord, are there things in my life that I need to make better? Are there things in my life that do I need to return to my first love? Right, And so that's what the Holy Spirit does. It's what he speaks to us. I want to encourage you to allow that to happen. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you for those who are here this morning. I thank you for the message this morning. I thank you for your word to not just the churches back then, but to the, to the church today. Lord, as we continue to go through Revelation, as we go through the, the letters to the churches and we start to get into what would be called futurism, Lord, I pray that we keep our mind on you, that we keep our thoughts on you, that you would be exalted in this house and in our lives. Lord, this morning I pray over the farmers of the community. Lord, as they're uh, in the field right now and taking in harvest and, and doing all the things that go along with that, Lord, I pray that you would keep them safe. Lord, I pray for safety. I pray for uh, that. You would keep the machines running efficiently. Lord, I pray that things will get done uh, in order to ensure good crops for the farmers. Lord, we thank you for blessing us to be a blessing. Lord, I pray over those who are here this morning. I pray for those who are enduring sickness, those who are um, worried about things that may be coming up this week. Lord, I pray that you would bring comfort and peace to them, bring healing to their situations. Lord, I pray that you would move in our hearts and in our minds. I know there's some schools being closed for COVID and there's some uh, things being shut down around the area, but that we would not have fear, but we would have courage and strength and we would use wisdom and faith. Lord, I thank you for all those who are here and who are watching online. Lord, I pray that you would bless them. I pray that you would keep them. Lord, I pray that you would cause your face to shine down upon them. And Lord, I pray that you would give them rest. 
We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. With that said, God bless you. I hope to see uh, youth this tonight at 6, and I hope to see you on Wednesday night at 6.30.